it's amazing that so many people ascribe magical properties to these words. You know, like, these four-letter words can really, you know, do something bad to you, and everybody says it. Don't you think, uh, in a way, that it takes, it takes a lively sense of guilt to make sin fun or enjoyable? That society has discovered a great new way to make life enjoyable. Like, make, give you a sense of guilt about everything, and then everything is potentially interesting, exotic. Yeah, no shit! I'll take care of this at once. This one's going to be about re-articulation and re-signification. Shame, you slut! Why the f*** does it feel like you're whipping slut. me? Because your soul got tangled in a dirty slut! Ow! Slut Ow. soul! Grandpa, you do slut. something! Or I will tweet and you will be cancelled. Let's face it, our cities are fucked. <laughs> Previously on the show, in episode 3, we talked data. Data pushed to imagine a not-so-distant future. Data not as property, but as relationship. Now, to get data, you do well having a platform to collect it. And humans today, we're by and large pretty promiscuous in how we use platforms, and how we get them to work for us. In this episode, I'm talking platforms with urban sociologist Letizia Chiappini a founding member of the Slutty Urbanism Collective. In getting to the origins of the Slutty Urbanism Collective, we also got into some real talk about our disenchantment with academia as a platform itself. In hindsight, I realized that subjectification and commodification of desire are cornerstones of just about everything we put ourselves in and through. This conversation was recorded in the summer of 2021 over a shoddy Zoom connection. It's part one of two, so let's get straight to it. Oh, I'm excited. I just had my first vaccine yesterday, earlier than I thought I would. Oh, how do you feel? A little tired. My arm hurts. Uh-huh. What did you get? I got the BioNTech. Is one shot? One shot, but then I have another one um, in one month. Okay, then it's probably what I'm going to do on Saturday. So good to know. <laughs> I will say... I was super chill on Sunday then. <laughs> Apparently in the US and in the UK, trying to get people to get vaccinated, they're really hyping up the online dating, platform dating apps as a way to like get people to really want to get vaccinated. Like, you know, that you can get a, a badge when you're vaccinated. Dating apps have partnered with the British government to allow users to display badges on their profile to show They've had the jab. Today, dating sites like Bumble, Tinder, Hinge, Match, OkCupid, BLK, Chispa, Plenty of Fish, and Badu are announcing a series of features to encourage vaccinations and help people meet people who have that universally attractive quality. They've been vaccinated against COVID-19. That's a very good example of how the platforms even subjectify our choice. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's interesting that the governments team up with these dating apps and platforms as a way to motivate people like, you know, sex and carnal activity. This will yeah. get people to want to do it. Exactly. It's more, it's, it's stronger than the scientific opinion. It's becoming a bit dogmatic that you're like, oh, <laughs> the only way to convince people is to say that they can Tinder again. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
or at least like the most effective way because it's like you know, this, no, this. nobody wants to listen to statistics and then you've got like the anti-vaxxers yeah. and the QAnon people I don't know if that's very big in Amsterdam but in Berlin for sure there's a lot of people who are very skeptic towards the vaccine and you know I, I do think it's a choice that everyone should make for themselves but uh, here yeah. there's a lot of people who are very uh, not into it at all but it's also such a hedonistic city I wonder how it's going to go here yeah. No, in Amsterdam, it was a bit different at the beginning because there were a bit of protests or manifestations and no vax. But then throughout, I think, like the, over the past two months, it changed a bit. So there are like a high percentage of people that are getting the vaccine and also the numbers are dropping. But I think that is also due to the fact that there are more expats in Amsterdam than real Amsterdamers. <laughs> so it's, whereas maybe Berlin is still the composition of the population is still a bit more German, I would say. But I think like Amsterdam is getting uh, much better because here the promise is the festival and parties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they are telling them that if they behave, they can party again <laughs> in <Yeah>. September. <laughs> That's motivation. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, well, that's interesting because I, yesterday I was watching again the uh, European Cup, although I'm not into football. And I've noticed that all the sponsors are platforms like TikTok. So it was funny when I was a kid, it was PlayStation, <laughs> so console. Then it changed it to ICT, like Vodafone or Verizon. And now it's TikTok or Booking.com. So all the platforms permeating and penetrating also in the UEFA, whatever is the European cup. <laughs> it's, so, it's so interesting that PlayStation was also a business. And uh, of course, the, the, the ICT companies, yeah, yeah. The ICT are also businesses and Pepsi is also a business. But it is still interesting that it switches really much into the organizational logics of these digital platforms that are sponsoring us now. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was a bit visible and also interesting to to observe. Well, we are talking already about platforms, so... So, yeah, thanks for sending me your play. I read through it immediately. The play, Glitches from the Pandemic, was part of the Austrian pavilion at the Venice Biennale d'Architectura this year. <laughs> and we didn't say who wrote what. So <laughs> it was a bit, uh, I guess, between our little collective. <laughs> yeah, you're three people in your collective, right? Yes, composed by three academic refugees. What's an academic refugee? It's a person that was part as a body, as an actor of a, a community or some sort of territorial boundary and all of a sudden this community is becoming toxic and uh, for this person to escape but still remaining <laughs> an academic <laughs> from a bad regime of publication and neoliberal logic. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, it might be interesting. Being an academic refugee, was that the drive to start slutty urbanism? Well, slutty urbanism was starting with this disenchantment or critique about the language, about the jargon and neoliberal version of academia nowadays. So during my PhD, indeed, I was thinking if I am part of this community, what is my value or my contribution? But then when you see the only contribution is to publish scientific papers, journals that are also very monopolistic. 
you need to escape, you need to find your voice and your exit also. Of course, you do your research. But there was an article recently on The Guardian that if you like academia, you don't like research. <laughs> well, I was a bit uh, naive at the beginning when I started my PhD. I was 28. And uh, of course, you come from, well, from my perspective, you come from a master or something that you really choose and you really want to pursue. And then you start a PhD, but then throughout this journey and this rite de passage, then you change your positionality, you become critical. If you are a critical person, then you might also think what are the new directions or if there are an exit in this world. So yeah, I, I am at the stage now that I still consider myself an academic because I like to do research, but I'm not sure if my research, my way, my, my modus operandi is appreciated. <laughs> yeah, I have my own experience with that too. It was quite an interesting um, wake-up call because I made a pretty direct transition from master's to PhD level work. And honestly, I think it's probably better if you're going to do it to take a break and have some time in between. But I found it very striking how the hierarchy, how strong that is. Earlier I had studied in Sweden and I didn't find that hierarchy so strong. But in Germany and in Switzerland, where I had started my PhD, I found it like suffocatingly <laughs> present. It wasn't so easy at the time. It really wasn't. I really struggled and had a, at least six months period of really feeling very out of it, but also being uh, fearful of being out of it. So it was quite a struggle for a while. Yeah, because you, you reach the stage in which you think that is is a pity, right, to, to quit. It's like a relationship. You always think that there is something to say, something to, to look into from a different perspective. But then if it's too much, uh, what happened to me was also the imposter syndrome. I wasn't sure about my value if I was enough for this academia or this. Where did it start for you? I started in Italy, in Milan, my PhD, and... And there, the hierarchies are quite visible. But at the same time, because they are visible, you also know how to escape from those hierarchies. Or at least uh, you know uh, that there are certain aspects like nepotism or certain behaviors that are visible and you just, you just don't want to go into that. But in countries where there is what I call, like, a cognitive Eldorado where like where there are money in university they are prestigious especially in the Netherlands and uh, all of a sudden you realize that these are still there and are even worse because you don't recognize them and that's dangerous because you really trust the culture you really think oh this place is, is an amazing healthy uh, environment but then it became toxic I love that term that you just put there, cognitive Eldorado. I also had my cognitive Eldorado. And um, I, I was the only woman in my team. And I thought that was also 
quite fascinating. They, they also wanted to have more women, and perhaps to a certain extent, I was even some sort of quota filler. But on the other hand, it was also like being the woman in the team, I, I also felt like it was such a huge difference in approach. And while maybe on some cognitive level that was wished for on their side in hiring me, on the other hand, I was punished if I didn't follow the exact same sort of protocol of how things are done as the way that they were already being done. So it's like you're hired for your difference, <laughs> yeah. but then you're, you know, kind of dismissed at least in a symbolic way, for being different. Yeah, that's part of exactly what I perceive as cognitive. Because indeed, you, you really think you are valuable, your original gaze or different cultures also play a role. But then you realize that if you are not behaving in a certain kind of regime or rules or expectations, then you're also not appreciated anymore. But there are also life choices in between, right? I have decided to come here and I was enthusiastic and I'm still, I'm still enthusiastic. I'm just a bit disappointed and disenchanted about what I was expecting. Probably it's also the fait de passage. You're like, I didn't quit. I just tried to, <laughs> to work from inside, <laughs> let's say to level and to try to bring other kind of inputs within the university also it's not urbanism but it was not the topic it was a bit of resistance let's say <laughs> yeah working from inside um it's difficult because i've often felt that i can have that positionality as a starting point but the further i take it i realize the inside is subsuming me sucks me in that things become more about maintaining and defending a position, particularly in this time we're living in when institutional funding is um, struggling to stay afloat. And then the question becomes, why am I doing this? Whose fantasy am I basing my entire waking life on? Am I just a slave? And if I'm to dig where I stand, where do I stand? With who do I stand? Maybe I'm just standing on this thin layer over a hollowed-out center. But you were just saying when you and your collective kind of came out or came forward with your manifesto for slutty urbanism that you encountered resistance with that. Yeah. Already the term that we have used is quite problematic sometimes. What does slutty mean for you? Well, slutty is a provocation. We, we use the term slutty in two ways. One is symbolically to open up a discussion that is not about smart city or best practice, all these words that are so misleading. Or like when I read figures about happiness, who are the happiest countries in the world, and I'm like, okay, the indicators you are using, the hype around smart city or or sharing economy are, are very dangerous. Therefore, using a term like slattiness or slatty urbanism, maybe it, it evokes something different. And the resistance was more related to the vulgar part of it. It was considered vulgar. Yeah, 
very vulgar and also not needed in academia. There are, why do you need another term? Then our positionality uh, is then, well, we are slutty because we know that some choices that we made in our everyday life are part of bargaining and negotiation between our values and the market. <laughs> Living in cities like Amsterdam or Berlin or Milan, of course you have to be a bit selective in your choice. Why is it, of course, you have to be a bit sluttish in your choice? Okay, let's say we don't want to to be part of the platformization of our life, right? To really be out of platforms and uh, and live another kind of life. All right, side note here. This is classic leftist critique. I'm just scared about who is going to reappropriate, who is going to recapture this value. That's a very Marxist uh, heritage. <laughs> to disempower homogenizing forces of the market by not participating in them. And I think it could be generational too. Generation X, millennials, even the boomers to a certain degree. We can have this pretty rigid sense of right and wrong involvement, not involving ourselves. Resistance and refusal. In a way, we signal our values. We show other people where we stand based on what and how we choose to consume. Now, when you're already in a given discourse, the subtleties of this, they're not so obvious. But to people or from outside the discourse, it's worth saying because it's so obvious, it's so right in front of your face that you don't even see it. It's difficult to have that distance to look at oneself critically. To understand the real motives of why I'm here, why I'm doing this, why I embody these as my choices. Morality is sold to us in so many ways not just as a commercial product. And it starts really early, looking up to people who are cool, climbing the social ladders, seeking validation among those we admire or those who supported us. Still, I've got to ask the question, what is platform urbanism? And why would someone choose to be out of it? Okay, platform urbanism as, as a term, as a notion, was coined to say that digital platforms such as Uber and then Deliveroo, like Amazon, Facebook, they are part of our everyday life. And therefore, how the city is developing now is also through these digital platforms. Talking about Airbnb and how our also governance, so our political actors, the state, apparatus is involved in the urban development in which platforms are prominent. So this is part of the theoretical discussion around platform urbanism. And then you were saying, you know, if we choose that we don't want to be a part of it, we don't want to, what's that about? <laughs> well, let's think, uh, let's think about our life without any platforms. Of course, we can say I don't use Airbnb because I don't want to contribute, so I want to boycott Airbnb. So what's the deal with Airbnb? Well, in short, Airbnb pushes up price of rental housing by removing housing from the housing stock. 
essentially the professionalization of Airbnb is hollowing out cities, making them essentially enclaves just for tourism. Now, some cities have reacted and taken legal measures to stop this from happening. Well, prevent it from further accelerating. Cities including Amsterdam, New York City, Paris, New Orleans, Santa Monica, Reykjavik, Barcelona, and Berlin. As far as I know, Lisbon and London have yet to respond. The London Borough of Westminster is particularly hard hit, with an estimated 5,000 properties taken out of the traditional rental market. It is taking homes away from people who might otherwise be, be living there um, on scale. So there are wards in Westminster where one in ten properties are permanently in the short-let sector. That's not good. So basically it's up to us as consumers, citizens, to make choices for ourselves, to choose whether to contribute or not. But then you're like, I don't want to use any social networks. I want to avoid to share my data with uh, Instagram or Facebook. But at the same time, I think the Instagram and, for instance, what are we also doing now is on Zoom. So how can we avoid platforms in our life? How can we really detach and disentangle with these new kids on the block? For me, it's the real question. Because we are stuck in platforms. We are stuck in, in this. So I'm questioning myself. How can I be less <laughs> slutty in, in criticizing and ultimately using also these platforms? Is Tinder also a platform? Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> a platform. <laughs> well, it's interesting because the etymology of platforms is indeed also a platform from French and is Plain is just a layer, a plain layer in which you can hold things, you can pile up things. But it's also the platform is where you are when you are waiting the train, right? So there is an evocation of this etymology and platforms, how we actually use them, what is in there, what kind of piece of object is a platform. So it's also fascinating for me to reflect upon what is indeed a platform, why is not an app? Yeah, what's the distinction? What makes platform platform and not an app? Well, because there are functions that allows you to geolocalize yourself, to communicate, to post about yourself, to pay. So intrinsically, there are all the elements that we have in our real life. So payment, geolocalization, localization without geobot, interaction with our friends, our pictures. And this is very pervasive. Absolutely. I mean, it's hard to imagine not using any of these. I use car sharing apps quite often. Yeah, apps, car sharing platforms. Um, I guess the car sharing one is the biggest one for me. But then, you know, recently I was thinking, oh, look, food delivery. I live a little bit outside of like the main city center in Berlin. And then I realized that, oh, no, they don't deliver here. My partner was was a bit disappointed. <laughs> I believe so, especially during the pandemic. I was discussing that too. And then it was like, what are we eating? Yeah. <laughs> uh, until that. <gasps> And therefore, when we realize rice and vegetables, were, rice and vegetables, rice, rice and, and vegetables, exactly. <laughs> and then we realized that, of course, there was these platforms like 
either Tausbus or, or Uber Eats, they were bringing us delicious uh, <laughs> pokeball <laughs> or something that was out of our spectrum <laughs> possibility. And then we said, well, of course, why not? One day is not bad. And then you become lazy because that's what, in a way, the platforms <laughs> to make you lazy, right? So it's before, like, I was cycling much more uh, when I arrived in Amsterdam four years ago. Uh, there was no roaming back then, so I was I didn't have internet on my phone. So I was still super glad and proud of myself that I was not using Uber to go home <laughs> during night. I was cycling in the rain, and then. Last year, I was like, yeah, why not using Uber when I'm tired or lazy? And now, to be honest, they are there. I mean, I tend to delete them to clean my phone. But then when I need it, I just I just click. And it's a bit similar to Tinder. It's easier to scroll, to swipe, than to go out and talk in a bar. I have actually, I think I'm really an anomaly in this. I've never used Tinder. I've held my friends' phones and kind of swiped for them. They're telling me to be really careful with the way I swipe. (laughs) (laughs) I did super like for a long time because I didn't understood that my gesture of my my stupid finger was actually creating (laughs) extra expectation with people. (laughs) Because if you swipe up, it's a super like, and I didn't know that. (laughs) I was messing up my (laughs) team. And I deleted because I was like, ah, that's not my thing. I was using it in the, my routine. So checking my ING app and discovering that I was poor, <laughs> my bank account, and then using Tinder. And then, and then you use Instagram and then your morning routine is like, wow, very productive <laughs> an hour on your checking if you are poor, <laughs> miserable. <laughs> and then, yeah. So I also, I also deleted immediately, but I was not really good at it. <laughs> not good at it, Tinder. Not good at it, too, exactly. <laughs> How is anyone good at Tinder? I don't know. I have a friend of mine that like are actually a close couple uh, that they met during the pandemic through Tinder, and now they bought a house together. That's really fast. It's really fast during the pandemic. It's the accelerationism. Exactly, it's going exactly. full on. <laughs> it's, 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 I agree so much with this <laughs> acceleration. I mean, because it's not even platformization. It pertains life choice and big life choices. Like before I date and then I buy a house. That's why I want desperately to write this piece. Again, not a, an academic piece called... Funda is the new Tinder. I don't know if you have a platform in Berlin to find your uh, house and both renting or buying. Do you? I've never heard of this Funda. Yeah, this is Dutch. But now after Tinder, you are definitely moving in your in your screen to another platform and say, now I'm going to buy a house or I'm going to rent. And it's the same scrolling, is the same gesture. So you have pictures of your house in which there is not only, of course, the aesthetics, but there is the lifestyle. I don't know, there are kids' room or studio <laughs> for what we are. I don't know, Bohemian, uh, they doesn't don't exist anymore, but like <laughs> for creative people, <laughs> you know. And they sell this imaginary of this amazing life in the hip and cunning neighborhood in Amsterdam and then you met your 
partner and then you just move there and it's done. And this is true platforms, not in real life. Yeah, the, the real estate agent comes into play later, but your first fascination is pictures, imaginary, swiping, right, left, light. Are there people in the photographs? They are objects in the house. So yeah, there are some pictures sometimes. And when you go to visit, so when you date with the house, <laughs> then you see real pictures. <laughs> you see, you know, like all their uh, memories. You also look up in the fridge to see if the fridge <laughs> works. You just open the washing machine to see if it works. It's crazy because before you, it's like a bit Tinder. So before you are interested in the picture and in the description of the house or, or the person, then you swipe, then you put the light, you date with the house, and then there is the big difference that you have to then pay <laughs> or have a mortgage. <laughs> and then there are pictures of people. Yeah, yeah, all their intimate, well, their sentimental things are in there. Interesting. Yeah, I was really fascinated, but then scared. What are you buying? Is it, are you are not purchasing? You're purchasing a lifestyle in Amsterdam, not the concrete of the house. Right, you're buying, like you're getting interested in the reflection of an idea and wanting to see yourself in that idea. Exactly. Is this, yeah. And then who's making these ideas also like, you know, it's shaping our imaginary. But that's it. We can also say, just to move a bit about this subjectification that I really like, about Novaks. I don't blame Novaks per se, because if I talk to close friends of, for instance, my mother, they are primary school teachers in Italy and they have Facebook because they are, in, let's say, boomers, right? So they use Facebook quite a lot and their subjectifications go through the platform, through fake news, through the feed, to the bubble. Well, now it's not that popular anymore, the filter bubble, because indeed Facebook has also a different kind of algorithm. But still... I'm not an expert about algorithms. I know there are so many. <laughs> I will, I won't, I'm not able to have a discussion about algorithms. What I can say and what I perceived is that older generations are, again, subjectified through what they see on their feed page. And that therefore they don't uh, get the vaccine because there is this news about this lady that had thrombosis and is not even verified. So again, it's really strong how the social media platforms in those cases are shaping our opinion, decision-making, our life's choice. Just be careful you don't swipe up on your funda, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, it's 3,000K. <laughs> Directly your from your ING. <laughs> exactly. Everything is connected. <laughs> and then if you don't have it there, you go into debt. Exactly. And then someone will speculate on your debt. Definitely. Definitely is what I, is the next level of augmented reality. <laughs> like you and your video game. <laughs> I mean, during the pandemic, I, I was reading some numbers. In Amsterdam, the value of the house, the interest goes up to 11% in one year. And then due to the fact that people were not really traveling, right? So they were like, oh, what are we doing here with our, with our job? Amazing, creative <laughs> class. What are we doing? Are we going to buy a house? And then the answer was yes. And then the prices were going crazy for this. Funda got so much new users that they expand also their headquarters. So they have a new building. <laughs> 
I don't know Tinder, of course, they will have a headquarters somewhere like Airbnb does. But for instance, Amsterdam as a city is very interesting to to observe because now you you know have you noticed when you purchase something and maybe not because <laughs> you you have no restaurants that bring you food <laughs> but there are like um, really big companies now in Amsterdam that are managing the payment and they are called Adienne Molly and they are all uh, located in Amsterdam South which is the south of Amsterdam the business district and before it was uh, a lot of insurance companies and now there are all these like uh, payment uh, big big uh, companies in which all the platforms are connected because of course they process payments from airbnb vinted uh, depop well uber every uber eats and uber rider driver yeah so i'm seeing an even another part of platformization so if we talk about platformism now that i'm warming up i'm thinking yeah, i'm thinking about the physical articulation of those offices because they need offices right so they will be strategically located also and this is a built environment i want to really highlight what you said before the acceleration of it how it happens and how also the city has a clear impact of it it's crazy Taking all of this in, I can't help but wonder. Does accelerationism have a direct link with being slutty? In other words, is it the speeding up of technology and how we use it to broaden our connections, increase our options, make life more carefree? Is this the link to promiscuity put forward by the Slutty Urbanism Collective? And beneath this question, I'm wondering, is this fourth wave feminism kind of obscuring itself as third wave feminism? Or is this just exactly where we're at with Western, arguably white feminism, caught between the narratives of the third and the fourth waves? What I mean here is that we're using the words like sex positive, liberated agency, empowerment, and embracing the word slut for all of its complexity. But at the same time, I'm suspecting a bit of self-questioning in terms of morality, perhaps a feeling of just being bastardized by it all. So I asked Letizia to tell me more about the manifesto for slutty urbanism. Your manifesto for the slutty urbanism, you talk about a couple of ways that you use this term, the symbolic, which you already touched on, and then more of a semantic, the semantic associations of the word. And the semantic associations, you mentioned pathology and sin and amorality and promiscuity. So I was just curious, I wanted to like kind of hit you with these concepts individually and hear what comes to mind, maybe with this idea of accelerationism parallel to that. So like, what's, what's the pathology with all this? The pathology is like we are pathological in living in the urban. I mean, uh, well, that's also our positionality as academic. Mm, I, I want to make a little uh, clarification. We wrote the manifesto before the pandemic. When did you write it? So we wrote it in 2018 at the end, at the beginning of 2019. And then it took a while to just to, to think about it, if it was okay to publish it on Medium, because we were also like, okay, it's our reputation, you know? No, but then we didn't care again. But what we were thinking is like, we are academics, right? So we we are three women, Ying Tzu Lin from Taiwan, Taipei, Anastasia Alaunova from Bielorussia, 
and myself, all women from different countries living in a city like Amsterdam and saying, wow, we have to pay this rent is crazy because, well, that's another story. <laughs> Global cities also have a kind of very unaffordable lifestyle. I mean, the rent is very expensive. So we were thinking we are pathological because we need to live in the proximity of the city. We need to live in if we want to stay at Ufa in academia or to gravitate around what we need in terms of networks, in terms of relational capital. Of course, you can be also uh, <laughs> uh, in a very remote place, but still that's what, what was happening. It was, in, it was here, so conferences or events, uh, uh, symposiums. So that's the pathological part, the pathology. We need to live in cities in order to, to make our our salary out of it to stay close by what we what we also well what we like our friends our amenities but sin is also because we are a sinner we are part of this so we do like it we are hedonistic in that we are not ashamed to say it and amorality because of course there is this amoral perspective saying okay we are we were thinking when we go to a conference we look up for the cheapest place right we don't go to the hotel or we maybe share an apartment and this apartment can be on airbnb <laughs> so we can also be amoral in that sense because what is the cost for us to go to a hotel is higher of course we have our resources and promiscuity is because indeed we talk to policymakers, we uh, we talk to urbanist architects, and we are promiscuous. We also we cannot avoid that, right? It's a bit hypocrite to say, "Oh well, I'm a sociologist, whatever I am, or <laughs> a geographer, and uh, this is my little ivory tower." No, we want to be promiscuous because we think it's important to discuss and to break rules and and our language so those are those we started from these epithets how we call it yeah i was reading your play now this morning it's a three-act play right that you had submitted for the uh, biennale the architecture biennale correct in yeah. venice yeah what got you to write our idea was to go there and to blog live to have a residency um, in venice to blog about the topic platform urbanism within platform Austria. Two architects that invited us are Peter Mortenbock and Alge Nuschhammer. And they both uh, wrote this amazing piece called How We Live Together. And it was before the pandemic about our cities. So what we do in our cities. And pandemic started, so also they have to change their curatorial statement a bit more in uh, a kind of online version. And then they ask us, what do you like to write about platform urbanism and the pandemics? So we thought about the glitch, a connection to a book that I read recently called Glitch Feminism. Oh yeah, written by Legacy Russell. Yes, exactly. And I found it very powerful, the notion of glitch, because again, we are a glitch. We function as a glitch. I perceive myself also a bit as a glitch in academia. So maybe another academic refugees, it can be also a disruptor, a rupture, something that doesn't go with the binary 010101. And then we thought about glitches in the pandemic as a title and to give and to read from another perspective our relationship with technology. Say, what is our relationship? At first is about 
a chatbot with Airbnb. And the second is about Alexa. Alexa and avocado, right? Exactly. And the third one, which I found very interesting also, it's the relationship with artificial intelligence, how to make love. So it's a new kind of discussion we had. It was more about our bodies. So how our bodies are into that. Our bodies create glitches. Our bodies are into technology more than we think. I'm Liv Phoenix, host and producer of Bodies Construct. Big thanks to Letizia Chiappini for the talk, from her perspective as a researcher and lecturer in creative business at the University of Applied Sciences in Utrecht. Music by Oaken, Falcon Dives, Martin Lundstrom, Lodwerk Band, Dream Cave, and Farrell Wooten.